I, I love having the opportunity to come up here once a year to speak and to share a little bit about what's going on in the world of community and global engagement. Uh, and today I'm definitely going to be focusing a little bit more on one of those aspects than the other, and uh, hopefully you'll figure that out by the end. Uh, but a lot has happened in the year since I last spoke here. Um, uh, if any of you were at the chapel last year, you might remember I mentioned my grandfather who was in ill health and uh, he passed away. Um, it was very unfortunate. Um, another huge family crisis happened uh, just very shortly after that that we had to deal with. But then following that, when I was ready to write off 2013, I met the love of my life, got engaged, got married, and have now bought a house. So I don't even know what's happening in the last uh, 12 months. <laughs> it's... It's been crazy. It's been ups and downs, a uh, roller coaster of life, truly. And I'm truly blessed to be here to speak with you guys this morning. So let me just uh, begin by opening us up in a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we have the opportunity to come here and to learn more about who you are and what you're doing in this place. I thank you for the worship band that led us this morning so, so well and just uh, testifying to the fact that you are a holy God. And I thank you for your holiness. And as we learn today about you calling us to be holy, I thank you that you have put that charge on us and that we have the opportunity to learn more about who you are through this. In your name we pray. Amen. When I was younger, um, much younger, back in my high school into early university days, I worked at a camp, Willow Springs Camp. I loved this place. I worked there for eight summers. Uh, in a range of positions, but the one that I enjoyed the most was definitely working as a counselor. I worked in a cabin full of kids, had a lot of fun, and uh, we got up to no good, uh, sometimes pulling pranks on each other, getting involved in skits, um, entertaining the kids, and of course, teaching them about the love of Jesus Christ. This camp was great. I spent, as I said, eight summers there, really loved every minute of it and would not trade any of those memories. One of my favorite, favorite camp memories was this time during week eight, which was the last week of camp, which we also called Teen Week when the oldest kids were there. We, you would usually on the Friday night order pizza. One of the counselors would go out to the street corner close by so that the camp director didn't know that we were bringing pizza onto the property. And um, we would bring pizza into the cabin. All the boys would share it. They would sacrifice a little bit of their tuck money throughout the week to buy the pizza. And it was a lot of fun. So one summer, towards the end of my career, um, we decided to up the ante a little bit and to make it more than just a pizza night. So we decided to turn our cabin into a club. We, um, <laughs> we had a bouncer. Um, we had a guest list. Um, one of the campers' dads actually worked for Vachon, so we had just a stack of passion flakies to accompany our pizza. Um, another counselor had a TV that he brought in, so we actually watched Ghostbusters late into the night. Um, we had music just blaring out into the field, and we even coerced one camper to stand out front with two flashlights doing this like spotlights in the air, <laughs> so that it was just this true, true club experience. It was a good night. Uh, another one of my favorite camp memories, or I should actually say a bad camp memory turned good, was working with the younger kids. This was not my favorite area. I actually enjoyed working more with the teens, but uh, the, the younger kids were a lot of fun too. But the one thing that was really annoying about them is, especially on the first night, really hard to get them to go to sleep. They're super excited to be at camp. They just love being there. 
they want to you know, talk to everybody, they want to goof around, they want to have a lot of fun. And the, the part that it makes it even harder is that the bedtime is 8.30. And so as you know, 8.30 in the summertime, it's still light outside. And so you're trying to close the curtains and be like, go to bed. Um, and so you come up with a bunch of tricks to try and get them to sleep. So we would do races to the backfield and back, see who's the fastest to try and tucker them out. Or just do the classic, let's play graveyard and see who can be the quietest. Or just uh, threaten to take their tuck away or maybe bribe them with more tuck. Uh, anything to try and get them to be quiet. But perhaps my most favorite method and I can't take full credit for this, this is one that was pioneered by a fellow counselor, was to read to them. Um, but not to read just anything. He would flip open his Bible and turn to the book of Leviticus and just start reading in chapter 1. In about 10 minutes, the kids were asleep. It worked like a charm every single time. Leviticus has never been a book that uh, people would uh, use to answer the question, what's your favorite book of the Bible? Um, it is not one that's going to rank highly on the most riveting books of the Bible list. Um, but it is an important book nonetheless. Buried within the Pentateuch, it's a book that contains law and how God uh, wants his people to operate as they venture toward the promised land. And hidden within that book is a phrase that comes up three times. A phrase that you could easily gloss over it, but I think is one of the most important phrases that God says to his people as they're making that journey. He says to them, be holy because I am holy. He says it three times throughout that book. So back in a time before Jesus, before King David, before Samson, there was Moses. He, along with God, brought his people out of slavery, out of Egypt. They went through the ten plagues. They survived those. Pharaoh finally says, get out of here. Um, they're seeing the miracles of God before their very eyes. They cross the Red Sea. They're now venturing toward the promised land, and they make their way toward Mount Sinai. And they're sitting there awaiting to hear what God would have to say to them. They have just come through so much. They have crossed a sea on dry land. They have seen ten plagues. And so Moses ascends the mountain, and God descends on the mountain. It's this image of God calling his people up to something, but him also coming down and meeting them. And he's there on the mountain. And they say it takes about two and a half hours to climb up this mountain, if you believe the scholars and what they believe is Mount Sinai. And there on the mountain, God descends, and he tells Moses, the Ten Commandments, about how they will live, how they should function with other people. And as we know, Jesus would later sum up those Ten Commandments and love God and love others. And so the people are down on the ground. They can see up on this mountain something happening. They hear thunder. They, hear, they see lightning. It, it's just it's a, it's a crazy thing that's happening, something that has never happened before in mankind's history. And so the people don't know what to do, and so they decide to build an idol. They build a golden calf. After they had just witnessed all these miracles that God had brought them through, and they decide to turn their back on him that quickly. And so there's 12, sorry, 12 tribes in Israel, each named after a son of Jacob. One of these tribes, the Levites, 
uh, was called to be the priestly class of Israelites. All the descendants of Levi were called to be pastors and take care of the spiritual health of Israel. They weren't given an allotment of land. Um, They were instead given the role of taking care of the temple. And their wealth would come from people donating to the temple, their tithes, their first offerings. And so the book of Leviticus means relating to the Levites. This is a book that relates to how the Levites should govern their people. And it's in this book that we find this phrase, Be holy as I am holy. This book was thought to have been written by Moses, but probably we don't know who the true author of it was. But this book is concerned with finding a way for God and man to come back together in harmony, to find that unity where man comes up and God comes down. And so right there on the mountain, we see this strained relationship where God has come down and the people are sacrificing an idol instead of worshiping. God has rescued them, and they are disobeying. As we all know, Adam and Eve brought sin into the world, and there was a broken relationship between God and man. The relationship is strained. It is groaning. We can't come to God because he is too perfect, and he can't bring us fully to him because we have sin. And so there needs to be a solution. And so the solution that he comes up with on this mountain is, I'm going to give them rules for how they should live in order to not have sin in order to get rid of that, in order to be a better people. And so he was never trying to push himself away. When he descended on that mountain, he wasn't trying to scare them. He was trying to come to them. He was trying to bring himself to them. God is always trying to find a way to bring himself back into relationship. He's never trying to push himself away. And so now he has his people, they're venturing toward the promised land, and he wants them to be different. He wants them to stand out. He doesn't want them to just blend in. He doesn't want them to be Egypt part two. He doesn't want them to be like the Canaanites in the land that he is entering into. So he gives them a command. He gives them one piece of advice. He says it three times. Be holy because I am holy. They're entering into the promised land. They're taking possession of it, and they need to be different. They are in a covenant with God. They're under a promise, living a promise that God has given to them by bringing them out of Egypt into the promised land, a promise he made to their forefather Abraham, something that they have just held on to as so dear to them, this promise. And so now I was thinking of us, Tyndale, and we've often used the language of promised land when we think about Bayview. When we think about heading over there, this is our promised land, and we are making the march across the desert of Garnier. Um, We are being called to the land flowing with geese in the Don River. Um, And we have been venturing there. And I think the same thing applies to us. As we are marching there, we're not suddenly going to get there and be a better people. We're not going to be a better school just because we're there. We're a better school because we are now. Um, Because God is calling us to something now, before we get there. He's preparing us before we get there. Does that give us lots of opportunity? Yes. Yes, it does. It puts us right out there in front of the community. You saw that on the weekend when we were there, and you just drove down Bayview, and you saw this amazing fall festival happening, and just inviting the community in. But that attitude 
started a long time ago, and it's something that God is continually calling us to as we marched, marched toward the promised land, just as the Israelites marched toward the land of Canaan. We need to bring a prop attitude of, proper attitude and posture toward God. So let me just back up a little bit. Have you ever found yourself asking the question, why does God care what I do? Or what does any of it matter? Some of those deep life questions that you might ask yourself. We are told constantly that God's grace is bigger than anything we can do to earn it. And that's true. There is nothing we can do to earn God's grace. And if you've accepted God's free gift of grace, then you have relationship with him. We know that Christ is ultimately that true symbol of God coming down to earth to bring us back into relationship with him. And so we now live under a new promise. We don't have the promise of Abraham, of this land. We have a promise of a restored relationship with our God. Um, The Israelites were under the first covenant at Mount Sinai. We are now under the new covenant. And so, again, um, we come to this phrase... Be holy because I am holy. And so what does the New Testament, the New Covenant, have to say to us about this? Let's look in 1 Peter. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. There's a common misconception of what holiness is, I think. Uh, You think of the devout monk with the beam of light shining down upon him as this ideal of holiness with a halo above his head. Um, But the word holiness that um, we use in the Old Testament, and I'm sorry to any Hebrew students here or professors because I never took it, but so this word here in uh, the rough English translation is kadosh. And I'm probably butchering that. Again, I apologize. But the, the definition of that is to be set apart for a special purpose, the kind of the literal definition of holy. And so what does it mean to be set apart and for what special purpose? We have this idea that being set apart means being away from. But in actuality, set apart does not mean being away from. It means being a part of while being apart. What it means is in your circle, you're going to be different When people look at you, they are going to see something different. The people of Israel were marching into this land, and they were called to be different than the communities around them. But they weren't called to disengage from them. They were were to welcome the alien and the stranger into their homes. They were to take care of the widow and the orphan. It's like when I was a kid and my parents paid me an allowance. I set aside a certain amount that I wanted for that new toy, that new thing that I wanted, that was still money, it was still in my bank account, but it was set aside for a special purpose. When I was a youth leader, I would often have conversations with students about whether or not they should go to parties as Christians. Um, I would often tell them that they should, and I know you're probably thinking, you're a quality youth leader. Um, (laughs) But uh, they (laughs) they would come back at me with the same question, why, why should I go to these things. I should probably just stay home and um, not get involved with that. And I said, if you are able to stand up, and if you are able to go to those parties and say no to the drink, say no to the possible drugs that might be there, 
and be different, you are creating something. You are showing them that you're different and that there's something unique about you. If you can go and date somebody and not have sex till you're married, you can be different. If you can tell the truth and not cheat on that test, you could be a bigger person and you could be different. You could be set apart while still being involved with your friends and your world. Being holy means being different. It means being a part of something bigger, set aside for a special purpose, the purpose of love. God's special purpose for us is to love and be loved, to love God, to love others. God is saying to us, be different. Be a part of your community, but don't give in to it. Be set aside for love, for serving each other. Show love to your friends, your family, your coworkers. Be a part of my love and help me show love to the world. Be a part of my promise, my covenant community to mankind, to all. And so when the world hears holy, they see this. But when I hear holy, I think of this. I think of a woman who gave her life in the very community where she lived, where she dedicated every day to going out onto the streets and finding the most needy among us. I had the opportunity actually to work in Mother Teresa's home for the sick and dying when I was in Calcutta a number of years ago. It was one of the scariest experiences of my life, but also probably one of the most rewarding experiences of my life. I saw firsthand the work that the sisters do, where they literally will go out onto the street and find the most needy, people on the verge of death and bringing them in and caring for them. I was there when a man was brought in who had been so beaten down by the sun that he was in an almost comatose state, and they brought him in, and somebody literally just knelt beside his bed and prayed for hours on end for him. But they do more than just pray, not saying that that's not one of the most important things they do, but they feed them, they give them medicine, they care for them, they do everything that they need, and it's oddly one of the most hopeful places I've ever been. Yet people are dying there every day. Um, This is holiness. This is what it means to be holy. Being a part of a community means getting your hands dirty. It means helping your brother out. I'm moving on Sunday if anybody wants to come and help. Um, Just saying. Um, It means living the promise of Christ every single day. So what I'm saying to you is you don't need to fly to India to be holy. In fact, there are opportunities for you all over the place. Like right here in Toronto, in our very neighborhood of Willowdale. I'm going to bet that most of you don't know that there's a homeless shelter just probably 10 or 15 minutes away from here where youth from the community go that don't have homes. Um, In Willowdale. Every time you walk down the streets of our neighborhood, you have the opportunity to be a part of something holy, to be a member of the holy community. You have the opportunity to show that you are different, that you are a covenant person. So when it comes down to the question of whether God cares what you do, I would say the answer is overwhelmingly yes. God does care what you do. He wants you to be a part of something special. He wants you to be a part of what he's doing. He wants you to be a part of a movement. So believing in him means getting involved. It's when your faith is lived out in all sorts of cool ways that it becomes real. It's when you get off the couch, it's when you get out and engage your community, that you have the opportunity to experience your faith. 
and to be holy. This month, we are going to do something new. One of the uh, overwhelming responses I get from uh, students when they don't get involved is, I don't have the time. And um, one of the things that I've talked about with my local outreach coordinators, Kate and Darren, is that you have the time. Um, and if you don't think you have the time, you do. Um, we're going to, uh, hopefully on the board later on, uh, kind of show a timeline of what an average student day looked like and how many hours you actually have left over in a month. Even when you're doing your full studies and have a job, how many hours in a day there actually are left over. Um, but this isn't meant to be a guilt trip. But it is meant to say that you need to set patterns in your life now that will forever change who you are. And just when you think you graduate university that suddenly you're going to have so much more time, it is simply not true. Um, your time just becomes more and more full. And so we want to challenge you to set those patterns now to get involved um, and to be a part of something cool. And so we're doing the two-hour challenge for the month of October. We're asking people in here for two hours this month of getting involved in a local outreach opportunity. It doesn't necessarily need to be with Tyndale, although we do provide a lot of great opportunities for you to get involved, but we're asking for two hours. And if every person in here gave two hours, the amount of change and impact we would see on our community just within a month would be amazing. And so at the back, um, there's actually little forms that I uh, am challenging people to actually pick up and to sign and to leave with me today. Um, and on it, it says, I blank, agree to give two hours in the month of October in the year of 2014 with these points. I will get involved with or participate in a community or local outreach to opportunity that I've never done before. I will give back to a community that has richly blessed Tyndale and through Tyndale myself. I agree to allow accountability and follow-up. I will serve with a glad heart. I will realize there is always enough time to help those in need. And it finally finishes with, my time is not my own. It belongs to the Lord. And then you can sign it and give me your email, and I will actually follow up with you. Um, so don't sign it if you're not going to do it, because I will follow up with you, and I will challenge you. And it's not meant to be a high-pressure situation, but I want to see this community actually get involved before we enter into the promised land. I want us to be holy as God is holy as we make that journey, so that when we get there, we are already doing amazing work, and that it will just be a further extension of who we are. So I'm just going to conclude with a word of prayer, and then the papers are at the back, and again, I challenge you to fill one out and uh, leave it with me today. Just bow with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. I thank you that you are a holy God, and that you've set an example for us, and that uh, you challenge us to be holy and to be a part of what you're doing here. And so I just uh, think of this school and the opportunities we have here to serve this community and to be a part of this community that has so richly blessed us um, and just allow us to give back to them in meaningful ways. So I just lift this student body up before you as we march forward in the semester, as we march forward in this year. You pray. Amen.